Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the comp workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I, too, would like to welcome all of you to today's program highlights from the 2019 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting. And its subtitle is Caring for Every Patient, Learning from Every Patient. And um, today's program is one that I know many of you wait to hear um, over over the year, we have been offering this program for many years, and um, we, uh, it's a program that we do in collaboration with many other cancer organizations and uh, throughout the country. And um, we actually um, have a number of participants, of course, in the United States, both from um, um, urban areas, suburban areas, and rural areas, um, so from all different regions of the United States. And we also have international participants on today's call from Canada, India, Lebanon, Sweden, and Venezuela. So really um, a bit of a global call as well. Um, there are lots of you on the call today. I know you can't see each other, but there you are. You're here, and we're delighted to have you. Um, today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, Ethicon, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies and Novartis Oncology. I want to thank them for their support. Now, we have quite an amazing lineup of speakers today on today's program, and I, I'm going to get into introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker um, is going to is Dr. Edith Mitchell. And Dr. Mitchell is clinical professor of medicine and medical oncology, Department of Medical Oncology, Director Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, and she's 116th President National Medical Association. Um, and Dr. Um, Mitchell will be addressing clinical trials and evidence-based care and quality of life. It's now really my great pleasure to um, have Dr. Um, Mitchell begin this call and to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mitchell. Good afternoon. Today we will talk about some of the latest advances in cancer treatment from the ASCO 2019 meeting. Uh, ASCO was founded in 1864 and is the leading professional organization in the world for physicians and educational professionals caring for patients with cancer. Uh, over five decades, ASCO and its members have established and advanced the field of modern clinical oncology. And most importantly, our patients are living longer and better lives. ASCO members, together with patients with cancer, patient advocates, policymakers, government agencies, and others have invested in vital cancer research and have enabled and developed and delivered these remarkable advances. Nevertheless, cancer remains one of the world's greatest health challenges and Prevention options are few, uh, but ASCO research is continuing to advance therapeutic interventions for patients with cancer and quality of life measures so that patients are living longer and better. So ASCO's um, mission is to conquer cancer research through uh, research, education, and promotion 
of the highest quality care for patients. The vision is where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor of cancer is healthy. So ASCO has many um, strategic plans with opportunities for patients and consequently for patients living longer and better uh, that defines the goals that will mark progress toward cancer outcomes. Much of the information presented at ASCO 2019 uh, is the results of cancer clinical trials. And cancer clinical trials are so important in defining cancer mechanisms, cancer treatment, and how we take care of patients. Clinical trials are studies where people volunteer to take part in the test of new drugs or procedures or new technology. Doctors use the results of these clinical trials to develop more treatments for serious diseases uh, within the cancer realm. Through clinical trials, doctors find new ways to improve treatments and the quality of life for patients with cancer. And with these clinical trials, we might treat cancer, we might find and diagnose cancer, or prevent cancer. Um, And consequently, uh, clinical trials are very important. Not only that, uh, managing the symptoms of cancer and the side effects of treatment may also be a part of clinical trials. And clinical trials are the final step in a long process that begins with early research and with patients participating in the clinical trials, we're able to not only find the treatments for cancer, but also uh, prevent many of the side effects, both of the cancer as well as the treatment. And therefore, very important. And for a clinical trial, it is important that one understands that there is a protocol And that protocol defines, number one, the reason for doing the trial. Number two, who can join the trial and who is eligible to be a participant in the trial. How many patients are needed for the trial. Any drugs or treatments that will be given and how they will be given. The dose and how frequently treatment occurs. Uh, The clinical trial protocol will also define what medical tests need to be done, and how often, and what types of information will be collected about the people taking part in the clinical trial, as well as the side of potential side effects and what patients can expect. And why are clinical trials important? With cancer, patients are living longer lives with successful cancer treatment that are all the results of clinical trials. So clinical trials are important, and the patients joining those clinical trials are important. Uh, It is also important uh, that the patients participating in the trials provide information to help define uh, potential side effects and the quality of life, both 
during the treatment and after treatment. And with clinical trials over time, patients are enjoying more cures of various cancers, uh, lesser side effects of the cancers and the cancer treatment, and are therefore living longer and fuller lives. And with continued cl uh, clinical trials, we would like to see that we continue to improve uh, cancer care uh, for our future patients, and clinical trials are the key to making progress against cancer. Uh, with clinical trials over the years, we have been able to give what we define as evidence-based care. And evidence-based care means that doctors have designed clinical trials, we have the results of them, and we use the results of these clinical trials to help define uh, how cancer should be treated so that all patients have the advantages of the results of these clinical trials. And with these pathways, we know that all patients get the best care, the right care at the right time. Uh, and these therapies that have been designed offer each patient with each type of cancer specific and improved outcomes and specific care for that particular kind of cancer and in the process keeping medical costs down. Uh, so evidence-based care, very important. Uh, there is also the quality of life. And there is a growing recognition that quality of life is very important uh, for cancer patients. And therefore, with that goal in mind, we look at clinical trials and we seek information from patients on how are they doing, how are they feeling, are they able to work and continue their usual daily activities. So the information that patients give us back during clinical trials is very important so that we understand, one, how the medication or how the procedure affects the patient's lifestyle, if there are any toxicities, uh, and finding out how patients end the treatment. And not only do we want to know information that occurs during the treatment, but we'd like to know uh, how the patients do after that treatment. So therefore, uh, routinely with clinical trials, we add quality of life information, uh, and this gives us information at the individual patient level. So therefore, uh, the information that you will hear from the others on the panel today uh, from the summary of ASCO 29 will inform us of many of the strategies and the clinical trial results that have occurred this year. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to members of our panel today on what ASCO, the largest cancer organization in the country, first form 
by seven individuals who got together in 1964 uh, to review their clinical trials information. And now ASCO is the largest cancer information and educational organization in the world and has over 45,000 members. So with that, again, I thank you for being here and participating in this conference with us today, and I'll now give you back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mitchell. That was a superb presentation, wonderful as always, and um, just very um, helpful for everyone to think about um, the importance of these areas um, in our in care. And our next speaker is Dr. Julie Graylow, and Dr. Graylow is Professor and Director, Breast Medical Oncology, Jill Bennett Endowed Professorship in Breast Cancer, University of Washington School of Medicine, Director, Breast Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Graylow is going to be presenting updates from ASCO on breast cancer. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Graylow. Well, thanks so much, and hello to everyone uh, listening to this webcast. Uh, I'm going to give a very brief uh, and high-level overview of some of the exciting presentations in breast cancer at ASCO 2019. And I'm going to touch on estrogen uh, receptor-positive breast cancer, HER2-positive breast cancer, and triple-negative breast cancer. So let's start with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Um, what we've seen uh, over the past several years is increasingly we have a whole group of targeted agents that have been FDA approved to, to overcome resistance and enhance the efficacy of endocrine therapies. So therapies that are targeting estrogen receptor are the standard of care for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, but now in the metastatic setting, we have several drugs approved that can enhance the efficacy of these drugs, and most of those agents are under investigation in early stage breast cancer to see if we can further reduce recurrences in that setting. So one of these classes of targeted therapies that are being combined with anti-estrogen therapies are cell cycle inhibitors or CDK4-6 inhibitors. Three of them are FDA approved, uh, the first one in 2015 and then two more in 2017, and they're known as palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib. At ASCO, we saw the results of a trial of ribocyclib called the Mona Lisa 7 trial. And what was different about this trial was that it was the only study looking at these cell cycle inhibitors in metastatic breast cancer patients who were premenopausal. Uh, and um, so that was a big difference. Uh, this trial enrolled uh, early, uh, so metastatic, estrogen receptor positive, premenopausal patients, suppressed the ovaries, gave either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, and then patients either received ribocyclib uh, or a placebo. And the results of the study showed a benefit for adding the ribocyclib, the cell cycle inhibitor. So it's the first trial that looked at the benefit 
in premenopausal women. And uh, so we got some good information there. Um, we've already been using it in premenopausal women because there were a few premenopausal women included in some of the prior studies. But this really does lock in that this is of benefit whether you're premenopausal or postmenopausal and are starting endocrine therapy or estrogen-targeted therapy uh, for metastatic disease. Now, there's also a, another pathway uh, that interacts with the estrogen receptor. We call that the mTOR PI3 kinase AKT pathway. And uh, it also interacts, by the way, with with HER2, but uh, we have some interesting data on drugs that target different places in that pathway. We actually had an mTOR inhibitor, Everolimus or Affinitor, approved back in 2012 to be given in combination with an aromatase inhibitor in uh, metastatic breast cancer. Um, and we've just in June of this year had the approval of a drug called a PI3 kinase inhibitor, another part of that pathway um, in combination with fulvestrant, which is an anti-estrogen agent. So uh, the, the PI3 kinase inhibitor that was FDA approved this June is called alpelacib, and uh, it was approved based on a trial called the SOLAR-1 trial, solar like in sun. Uh, it was a trial of postmenopausal metastatic breast cancer patients whose tumors expressed um, estrogen receptor, and they'd had at least one prior hormonal therapy for metastatic disease. Everybody got fulvestrant, an anti-estrogen used to treat metastatic breast cancer, and then patients received either alpelacib, the PA3 kinase inhibitor, or a placebo. And that trial... Uh, which was just uh, published in 2019, showed a benefit for adding the PI3 kinase inhibitor. Now, none of these agents are without their toxicities, and Elpelacib uh, can cause elevated glucoses, it can cause rashes uh, and other issues, but it, uh, if we can manage the side effects, it, it does offer benefits uh, to our metastatic estrogen receptor positive population. There was a third drug, uh, an AKT inhibitor that's part of this mTOR PI3 kinase AKT pathway that we saw some early data on. Uh, this AKT inhibitor is called um, capivacertib, and again, it was a small, non, uh, a small trial, a phase two trial, uh, that looked at fulvestrant, the anti-estrogen with the AKT inhibitor or a placebo, and it showed benefit. This is going to be moved into a bigger trial, and maybe we'll have yet another class of targeted agents that can enhance the efficacy of anti-estrogen treatment. And I mentioned that all of these trials are in the metastatic setting, but many of these drugs are being studied now in early-stage breast cancer as well. So moving into HER2-targeted therapy, um, we have five 
FDA-approved drugs that target HER2, and that's about 20% of the breast cancer population. Um, we saw uh, the results of a, a trial of one of those drugs, neratinib. That's the most recent drug that's been approved in breast cancer, and its approval uh, is based on uh, what we call the extended adjuvant setting. So it has not yet been approved in the metastatic setting, but it's approved after you're done with, for example, a year of HER2 therapy in early-stage breast cancer. If you're still at a high risk of recurrence, this drug was tested and approved to be added orally after that, and it, it further reduced recurrences. So what we saw at ASCO was the NALA trial, of neratinib, this HER2 drug, it's oral, um, and it was given in combination with chemotherapy, capecitabine or zolota, and that was compared to the same chemotherapy uh, with lipatinib, which is an older, previously approved oral HER2 agent. And in the NALA trial, which was metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, the combination of capecitabine or zolota with neratinib won in the trial, um, and actually, interestingly, there was some data that um, fewer patients uh, required uh, or were found to have a brain or central nervous system uh, problems that required intervention. So maybe this drug, which does penetrate the blood-brain barrier, will be good for brain metastases. It does cause a lot of diarrhea. All of these drugs have their toxicities, but it offers another option um, that we could potentially use neratinib in the metastatic population, and ongoing studies will investigate its role for treating HER2-positive brain meds. We saw uh, the result of uh, a very interesting trial called the SOFIA trial, looking at another HER2 agent. This one hasn't been FDA-approved yet, but it's called Margatuximab, and basically, it's a version of trastuzumab or Herceptin, but one end of it's been modified and revved up to enhance the immunotherapy effects of Herceptin. And so th this trial, the SOFIA trial, was for metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, and patients were allowed to get one of several different kinds of chemotherapy and then were randomized to get either margituximab, the immune-enhanced kind of Herceptin, versus trastuzumab or Herceptin with the chemo. And um, this trial showed... Um, a benefit for the margituximab, not a big difference between chemo with margituximab versus chemo with trastuzumab, but it was a little better. And I think the important point is it offers the potential for yet another drug that targets her too. And then in closing, I'll just briefly talk about um, some immunotherapy in triple negative breast cancer. Uh, I think patients with triple negative disease know that we've had the recent approval in March of an immune checkpoint inhibitor in uh, triple negative breast cancer that's metastatic, and that's atezolizumab. Um, it's one of many different drugs that have been approved in lots of different kinds of cancers previously um, that uh, rev up the immune system, uh, but this was the first... Uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor approved for breast cancer. 
Um, and it was based on the Impassion 130 trial. We saw an update of that trial at ASCO. The trial was a Braxane or a nanoparticle version of Taxol um, with uh, the atezolizumab, the immune checkpoint antibody, versus a placebo. And we had previously seen benefit in patients whose whose lymphocytes, immune cells around the tumor, expressed something called PDL1. That's what uh, atezolizumab targets. And then we saw an updated ASCO just looking at longer term follow up, which shows sustained benefit. Um, and then in closing, I'll just mention, and this was not at ASCO, that we just got a press release on July 29th of a different immune checkpoint inhibitor called pembrolizumab um, in earlier stage breast cancer, in triple negative breast cancer. Um, that was a trial of chemo, paclitaxel and carbo, with, with this other immune checkpoint inhibitor, pembrolizumab or a placebo, and then followed by uh, some AC chemo, and then everybody went to surgery. So this was not metastatic. It was locally advanced triple negative breast cancer, and the press release on July 29th said it was a positive trial um, and that we will be seeing the results of this at an upcoming meeting. I think it will be presented at the end of September at a European meeting. So we now have approval of an immune therapy in triple negative metastatic breast cancer and what sounds like, and we're waiting for the data, a very interesting trial of of earlier stage non-metastatic uh, triple negative breast cancer with another immune therapy. So lots of new drugs, lots of excitement. I know most of what I talked about was uh, in metastatic disease, but I think the concepts and the drugs are all being studied in the earlier stage setting, and the key will be to look at how much benefit are these drugs getting versus how much toxicity are they causing, especially when we move it into the earlier stage setting. So that's my high-level overview of uh, breast cancer presented at ASCO. I hope you hear there are lots of exciting new drugs and new concepts and lots of, of hope for our patients. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grelo. That was really superb and, and, and really wonderful. And, and also the way you've highlighted um, the advances, but also um, the balancing of the um, for early stage the uh, the the, um, the treatment um, as opposed to side effects. So that's really important. Managing the side effects. So it's really a very important thing, which you're going to hear more about as the call goes on. So I appreciate your saying this, and and it and it's very important in terms of. Um, so thank you, and all the new advances are terrific. So. And our next speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor, Department of Obstetrics Gynecology, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, Florida International University. And Dr. Runowitz is going to be presenting on updates from ASCO on ovarian cancer. Um, and um, it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz, who actually has been speaking on this topic um, pretty much since we started doing these programs. I'm going to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you, and good afternoon, and I'm delighted to be here again. And I thought what I would do is give you an overview of where we are in ovarian cancer and then specifically where the focus was in the ASCO 2019 meeting. The management of ovarian cancer is evolving from a one-size-fits-all to a more precision and targeted approach. 
You just heard Dr. Grelo talk about the individual trials based on uh, markers and receptors and pathways, and we are moving in that direction now in ovary cancer as well. Some of the highlights in the recent years has been the recognition that the fallopian tube may actually be the source for ovarian cancer in high-grade serous ovarian cancer. Additionally, large-scale molecular analyses of high-grade serous tumors and the addition of bevacizumab and the PARP inhibitors have really uh, helped us understand these different genes and signaling pathways and allowed for more precision therapy. An example is that 50% of high-grade serous have defects in what we call homologous recombination deficiency, which provides a rationale for using a PARP inhibitor so that you don't necessarily have to have a specific genetic mutation but have a defect in this recombinant deficiency pathway. Gene expression studies have stratified high-grade serous ovarian cancer into four types. And this is where the similarity to breast cancer, where in years past we thought of breast cancer as one or two diseases. We thought of ovarian cancer uh, epithelial as one disease. And we now recognize that there may be four types, which will ultimately determine what approach we use in the chemotherapy or the targeted therapies. The, the other advance has been the practice of maintenance therapy giving the treatment after the uh, chemo to maintain the response, to maintain the patient in remission. And then uh, ovarian cancer has also been the subject of the use of the immunotherapeutics, and we're learning about the concept of immunologically hot and cold tumors and how to turn a cold tumor into a hot tumor that will respond to these new immunotherapies. So overall, it's been an exciting time. Specifically, um, the meeting had a large focus on PARP inhibitors. Uh, there was a large phase one study from the gynecologic oncology group looking at the combination of a PARP inhibitor, Velaparib, with standard chemotherapy, paclitaxel and carboplatin, um, and then additionally um, adding bevacizumab. So this was a phase one trial which determined the dose that they can go into a phase two study. The CLEO trial was also uh, one of the abstracts which evaluated Olaparib versus standard of care in both platinum-sensitive and platinum-resistant disease in heavily treated patients. And the Olaparib arm showed a response rate that was three times higher than standard treatment. Now, the responses were higher in the BRCA, the BRCA-mutated patients, but as we talked about earlier, if there was a homologous recombination deficiency identified, activity was seen. In the SOLO3 trial, it's a randomized phase two trial of Olaparib versus a non-platinum chemotherapy in BRCA-positive patients who were platinum-sensitive, who were heavily treated with an average of three or more treatments. And there was a higher response rate, again, for the PARP. 
um, with a response rate of 72% versus 51% in the chemotherapy arm. Uh, there was another study, a um, multi-group study from the NSGO, the NGOT um, ovarian 24 study, which randomized chemotherapy um, phase two, chemotherapy-free phase two niraparib and bevacizumab versus niraparib alone in recurrent platinum-sensitive disease. And the combination of the niraparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, with bevacizumab was more effective um, than the PARP alone. And the study was based on the rationale that angiogenesis inhibitors like uh, bevacizumab disrupt DNA repair, and that is the rationale for that combination. So that, I think, is very interesting. Then there were studies in, in the immunotherapy. Um, one of the anti-PDL1s was combined with niraparib versus the standard of care, but the results were too early. However, the observation was noted that the PARP inhibitor and the anti-PDL1 are synergistic. So that's something that we should be looking for in the future. And then there was a follow-up on a, on a combination of alaparib and sidaranib, uh, which has been shown to be active. And this particular study showed that there's activity even in patients previously treated with PARP inhibitors. So taken together, these studies all suggest that PARP inhibitors may be substituted for chemo in patients with recurrent ovarian cancer regardless of platinum sensitivity or mutation status. Then there was an exciting um, presentation on the WE inhibitor um, combined with chemotherapy. It was an open-label forearm study of the WE inhibitor with chemo in patients with platinum resistant. And the chemo could be gemcitabine, carbo, weekly Paxil, um, doxorubicin, pegylated doxorubicin. And of all those chemotherapies, the patients in the carbo arm had the greatest benefit um, with the WE inhibitor. The, there was another trial of a WE inhibitor using gemcitabine um, with the WE inhibitor versus gemcitabine alone, and again, the combination was more effective. So taken together, we inhibitors clearly deserve future study in ovarian cancer. Then there were several, at least seven, uh, abstracts that covered new agents, um, which included uh, PAN-VEGF inhibitors, um, NUC1031 with carboplatin, um, then some of the immunotherapy, you heard about Pembro. This was used with car Carbo, um, and it was well-tolerated. Yeah. And then um, Avalumab is another anti-PDL1 with an HDAC receptor inhibitor, and this combination was, was not any better than the um, anti-PDL1 alone. Then there were some other immunologic studies. Uh, surviving as a T-cell vaccine, and what they looked there for endpoints was the infiltration of tumors with specific T-cells. So at the beginning, I talked about making immunologically hot versus cold tumors. When you increase the specific T-cells, 
um, that makes the immunologically hot tumors, which respond better to the uh, immunologic therapy. Then there was um, a sort of a Trojan horse concept, which has been used in breast as well, of an antibody drug conjugate. And it, that particular conjugate targeted folate receptor, which we see um, in a very high percent of patients with ovarian cancer, that targets the folate receptor, gets into the cancer, and then releases the drug. So sort of the Trojan horse concept. And I, that, was, that study clearly showed activity. Um, and obviously, we need to um, continue to study that and expand the trials. And then you heard it from Dr. Graylow about the cell cycle, cell cycle inhibitors. Uh, ribo um, is one, and they combined it with letrozole in ER-positive ovarian cancer. And as an aside, up to 60% of ovarian cancers have estrogen receptors, especially the low grades. And sure enough, we saw an effect. And that was really well tolerated and very similar to the breast cancer treatments uh, that Dr. Graylow was talking about. So I think the take-home message from this meeting is there's an expanding role of PARP inhibitors. There are some exciting new drugs on the horizon being studied. And understanding the molecular landscape provides us to appropriately use targeted therapies. So I strongly encourage all of our patients to seek out clinical trials where there are these new agents. Um, the tumors can be um, better characterized to better predict response, and the field will continue to make giant leaps. And that kind of summarizes where we were in ASCO 2019 in ovarian cancer. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was really wonderful and, and really very inspiring in terms of, um, and, and also just the call out to clinical trials as being such an important vehicle for everyone to think of utilizing in terms of your care, exploring this. It's really important um, in terms of getting the very best care. So thank you. Um, and that theme will also be repeated, I know, throughout um, this call. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Susan Sloven. Uh, Dr. Sloven is attending physician Genitourinary Oncology Service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She's also a professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Weill College of Cornell University. And Dr. Slobin will be presenting on updates from ASCO 2019 on prostate cancer. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Slobin. Thank you, Carolyn, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, once again, I'm charged with giving you the updates in the world of prostate cancer as uh, presented to us from the American Society of Clinical Oncology. This year's meeting focused on largely patients who had metastatic disease at presentation and those who developed metastatic disease despite being on hormonal therapy. Now, this is all very good news in a lot of ways because now we have more and more options that are available to our patients than we've had before. So every year I'm always happy to present that there's something new and different that could actually help people with their cancers. 
Many of you know over the last uh, several years we have new drugs that have come into the armamentarium for prostate cancer. The uh, standard drugs have always been uh, androgen deprivation therapy, which is either a GnRH analog or antagonist, meaning Lupron or Luprolide or Firmagon or Degorelix. These are drugs that immediately stop the production of testosterone and put men into a chemical-induced menopause. But we know using single agents is very often suboptimal, and therefore having combinations with a variety of different medications is very desirous. The last several years has shown the development of what we call androgen receptor signaling inhibitors. These are oral medications. They're not hormones per se, but these are oral medications that prevent the testosterone from getting into the uh, cancer cell and allowing the cancer cell to grow. One I'm sure you've already heard about is enzalutamide or Xtandi. The other one is abiraterone or Zytiga. They have different mechanisms of action. Uh, abiraterone working at the level of the cancer cell uh, that is making its own testosterone and therefore stimulating itself. Enzalutamide working at another level which is at the surface of the cell. And then the idea has been to combine these drugs with androgen deprivation therapy in an attempt to control metastatic disease. Now, we use them throughout the evolution of the cancer, but the new data that has come out has focused in on patients who are newly diagnosed with metastatic disease. And in most cases, we're talking about more than four metastatic lesions to the bone. Standard androgen deprivation therapy, as I've mentioned, has always been used. However, more recently, there has been data showing that one could use either enzalutamide or abiraterone in this setting with very good results. Similarly, if some uh, person comes in with metastatic disease, you could give androgen deprivation therapy with standard chemotherapy, which is docetaxel or taxotere. However, what was new this presentation at ASCO was another drug called apalutamide, which is a second-generation form of enzalutamide that can be shown to have effectiveness in uh, combination with androgen deprivation therapy. So now I'm giving you a litany of all these drugs uh, and the question becomes, well, how do I know what's right for me? Well, a lot depends, of course, on the extent of your disease. It depends on the symptoms. It depends on your ability to be up and about and your activity level. It depends on your liver function. There's a lot of things that a doctor needs to take into consideration before making a determination as to what is the best uh, treatment. So, for example, if someone came to me with newly diagnosed metastatic disease in bone, but was extremely frail and took a lot of medications and just had problems with medications, uh, I might just say Lupron or Zolidex or Degorelix, any of those hormone shots would be very reasonable. 
a person who comes in, irrespective of age, who may have a lot of disease and just finds that their cancer really is causing significant symptoms, this might be a person who will do well on either docetaxel or abiraterone or the apalutamide, as I've mentioned. A lot of decision-making is really based on the side effect profile of these drugs. They are all safe, but they have different levels of uh, contributions with regard to fatigue. So, for example, enzalutamide can cross the blood-brain barrier, and in an older person may make them more tired, may make them more susceptible to falls. Apalutamide has less of that penetration, but does have side effects that could cause uh, inflammation of the thyroid or a rash. Chemotherapy, of course, has its own side effect profile, which is a reduction in blood counts in some cases. But the good news is that we have so many different ways of attacking newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer that it really is the decision of the treating physician to figure out what would really serve this person well. Could this person tolerate a particular side effect? And what is the benefit versus the risk? So all of this was really quite exciting because, once again, it offers us the opportunity to really take a moment to think about how to best treat a patient with metastatic disease. And sometimes if one drug doesn't work, we can go on and try another drug. Now, what if everything is going wonderfully and you're going along for several years, uh, having been diagnosed with prostate cancer, yet we have not been able to detect any evidence of bone disease on imaging, meaning that you've gone through your standard androgen deprivation therapy, you may have had uh, abiraterone, you may have had one of the older drugs, bicalutamide, etc. What do we do? Well, we call that stage very differently than we call oldie. We call it M0. It just means that the hormones are no longer working and the benefit of uh, this particular stage is that there's no evidence of metastatic disease. It's hard to often see this happening because by the time we get everybody imaged, it usually uh, has the uh, disadvantage of patients already having disease. So this, this particular, what we call M0 state, is hard to detect because we often, it comes and goes so quickly, meaning you become resistant and your cancer starts to progress and you can see it on scans. It just happens to be that we have to catch that window. So several new treatments have been there, and they've already been presented about a year ago, which is using enzalutamide and apalutamide, those two drugs I mentioned earlier in the metastatic setting, but in this particular unusual group, which is just continued rises in your PSA despite failure of hormones in the absence of any disease that you can see. So one of the new drugs that came out is darolutamide, which is structurally a very unique uh, androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. It's, uh, it was under development for a number of years, and uh, what made it so unusual is that it had very positive effects. It had a different mechanism of action compared with the other one, thereby giving it a very different side effect uh, profile that seemed to be perhaps a little better tolerated. Uh, it... Um, had a lot of favorable effects on the cancer and, in addition, had a very good uh, safety profile. 
so this is another yet another drug that is being used in this particular setting. Now, if you said, well, we don't understand how do we go forward, how do we make the decisions, really all these drugs are comparable. They present an opportunity in the treatment armamentarium to give you some opportunity to have a drug that literally fits your current stage of disease, yet provides a side effect profile that may likely be much more tolerable for you than for the person next door who may have the same amount or absence of disease. So this is something that is custom tailored, but really gives you the opportunity to have a much more improved safety profile, but also may contribute to your disease being under control a lot longer. Let me say two more things that are very important, that there's continued interest in looking at immunotherapy in prostate cancer. That includes what we call chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T cells. But more importantly, everybody's interested in checkpoint inhibitors. Now, what we have found over the last several months and at these uh, prostate meetings is that there are patients who have or whose cancers have certain genetic alterations uh, that allow them to be much more susceptible to the checkpoint inhibitors, which is a, a group of intravenous drugs that uh, work to take the break off the immune system and fight the cancer. There's continued effort to identify patients who carry these genetic alterations, and I would strongly ask you that when you see your doctor, either when you're newly diagnosed or later on in your disease, to ask the doctor to really check your tumor for any genetic alterations that would make you a candidate for not only some of the immune therapies that are out there, but even for some of the newer what we call PARP inhibitors, which are drugs that work to inhibit the cancer cell's own ability to repair its DNA. These are all rapidly evolving fields. There's a lot of drugs that are coming to market now that are FDA approved, so I'm sure I'll even have more to talk about next year. But right now, the future is extremely bright and I'm very, very hopeful for more drugs to help uh, patients with prostate cancer. So I thank you very much, and back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was really superb and just a wonderful presentation. And really, in many ways, you really were discussing um, not only the updates from ASCA, but also the art of medicine in terms of how decisions are made about um, treating um, um, people uh, living with prostate cancer, with all cancers to some extent. So I, I, we may hear more about that as the program goes on, but thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Fabio Iwamoto, and Dr. Iwamoto is Assistant Professor of Neurology, Deputy Director, Division of Neuro-Oncology, Department of Neurology, Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And Dr. Iwamoto is going to be addressing updates from ASCO on brain cancer, and it's really my great privilege now to, to um, present uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Iwamoto. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and the Cancer Care team for having me again this year. It is my pleasure and a privilege to be with all of you on this call this afternoon to discuss a few exciting research studies in brain tumors presented at the ASCO meeting this year. The first study I want to discuss is a randomized study that evaluated the continuation or non-continuation of timozolomide after the first six cycles of standard treatment in patients with glioblastoma. So 
just as a background, our current strategy in taking care of patients with glioblastoma involves six weeks of concurrent radiation with timozolomide, so that radiation is given Monday through Friday for six weeks, the timozolomide every day, seven days a week for six weeks, and after that, there is a break, and patients then receive timozolomide five days on, 23 days off for six cycles, which is roughly six months. However, due to the uh, relatively low toxicity, uh, but also because timozolomides are capsules and uh, can be given by mouth, many physicians extend the length of the timozolomide regimen for more than six cycles. And this has been uh, used throughout uh, the U.S., but also in Europe, although the data does not support that. Um, but as oncologists, we always want to give, of course, the right amount of chemotherapy, too little chemotherapy, and we end up with early relapses or tumor recurrences or too much chemotherapy, and then we are giving more toxicity or side effects, also increasing costs may affect their quality of life. So in 2017, uh, there was a, a retrospective study, so this was not a planned study, but was an analysis of other uh, studies done in the U.S. and Europe, and they looked and in, in, in the idea was to see if patients who got more than six cycles uh, of timozolomide after the, the standard radiation timozolomide, if they did better than patients who got only six cycles, which is the uh, recommended standard. And in fact, there was no um, advantage in that retrospective study. However, retrospective studies are always uh, uh, hard to interpret because uh, they are not really planned to answer that question. So I, a group in Spain, uh, they initially surveyed many centers um, to first look at, you know, how long are patients uh, being recommended to be on the timozolomide. And in about 20% of the centers, uh, they followed the standard uh, six cycles, but most of them continue for longer, up to about 12 cycles. And this uh, Spanish group then designed and conducted a trial to answer this question. You know, does more than six months of timozolomide give a better outcome for patients? So they enrolled 159 patients, and these were patients who had completed, you know, had first underwent, undergone surgery, then uh, radiation with timozolomide, and then six cycles of timozolomide. And at that point, they were then randomized to either, you know, stop timozolomide and just be monitored or continue timozolomide for another six cycles. And the, the primary efficacy uh, endpoint was to see 
you know, if one group had tumor progression, you know, faster than the other group, uh, this measurement called progression-free survival. And their final results was that uh, there was no difference um, uh, between the groups if you continued chemozolomide post uh, six cycles or if you stopped after the six cycle of chemozolomide, uh, these patients did the same uh, in terms of uh, um, the risk of the tumor coming back or growing. Uh, regarding the toxicity, uh, the patients that continue the chemozolomide for longer uh, had three times more uh, uh, drops in platelets uh, in a almost double uh, drops in the uh, white blood cell called uh, lymphocytes. So this study is very important because it's the first uh, successful prospective study that compared six cycles versus 12 cycles of chemozolomide in glioblastoma patients. And they did not find any difference uh, in terms of uh, what's called progression-free survival um, between the groups. And I think that's important because uh, many patients may be getting treatments uh, that are more prolonged, that can cause more toxicity, have extra cost, and that really does not show to be uh, beneficial. So the next study uh, I want to discuss is a very large study in this uh, other type of malignant brain tumor called anaplastic astrocytoma. So this is a study called the Catnan study, and this was a very um, uh, important but also complicated study because there were four different arms, uh, so patients could be randomized to either getting radiation alone, uh, the next group got radiation with the chemozolomide during the radiation and then no more treatment after. The other group got radiation without the timozolomide, and then after the radiation ended, they got timozolomide uh, five days every four weeks uh, for up to 12 uh, cycles. And the final group got uh, the full-blown uh, treatment, so radiation with timozolomide followed by timozolomide for up to 12 cycles. And we knew the results um, uh, in 2017 that uh, the groups that got the timozolomide post-radiation did better than if they did not get the timozolomide post-radiation. But also um, uh, what the uh, follow-up study presented at ASCO this year show is that the timozolomide that is given during the radiation did not show to have that much of a beneficial effect for patients. So what it looks like is that the timozolomide that is given after radiation seems to be more important and have a bigger benefit for patients than the timozolomide that is given during the radiation. Um, in this study also, it was shown that um, both, there are two markers that are very uh, important for prognosis. Uh, one is this uh, called MGMT promoter methylated and also the IDH uh, mutation. 
meaning that patients will have uh, this IDH mutation or the methylated MGMT promoter, they overall do better um, uh, with these treatments. Uh, so moving to the next study, uh, there was a very exciting study using what's called an IDH inhibitor. So IDH mutations can happen in up to 80% of grade 2 or grade 3 gliomas, uh, but also can happen in about 5 to 10% of glioblastomas. And this is a very uh, important mutation that is thought to be one of the driver mutations of tumor growth uh, in these patients. So this uh, group from Japan presented a phase one study of a very specific IDH1 inhibitor called DS1001B. So this is an oral medication, and this medication was specifically designed for brain tumors um, based on its ability to cross this blood-brain barrier uh, well. So this blood-brain barrier is uh, a natural occurring uh, barrier between our bloodstream and the brain. And many drugs may not work for brain tumors because they're not able to cross this barrier and then reach the tumor and kill tumor cells. Um, so this drug, DS, 1001B uh, was shown in uh, animal models that it does uh, penetrate the brain very, very well. And they did this phase one study that, uh, as you know, uh, phase one is trying to find what is the best dose for patients, that it's safe and maybe has some signs of efficacy. Uh, the first good news of this study is that this drug was very well tolerated, and even in very high doses, they didn't see significant side effects. The most common side effects were skin hyperpigmentation and some diarrhea, uh, but most of the side effects were mild and very manageable. So it seems like the drug had a very uh, good uh, safety but what was most exciting about this drug is that uh, it showed that a significant percentage of patients had tumor shrinkage. So this is the first IDH inhibitor that has shown this degree of uh, good activity against uh, brain tumors that have the IDH mutation. So among 35 patients that had what's called enhancing tumors. So these are tumors that after uh, you are giving IV contrast for the MRI, the tumors uh, uptake this contrast. So among these 35 enhancing uh, tumors, there were one patient that had a, a complete disappearance of the tumor, and in five patients, the tumor reduced at least by half of the size before getting the drug. Uh, also, there were 12 patients who have tumors that did not enhance, did not uptake the MRI contrast. And among those patients, 
about uh, a third also had uh, a shrinkage of the tumor that was significant. Um, when you look at all patients, uh, approximately uh, half of the patients had tumor shrinkage, which is quite striking because other studies with IDH inhibitors were never able to show this degree of efficacy. So this drug is now, which is called DS1001, um, is being studied in larger clinical trials for tumors that have this IDH mutation. So for, for this drug to be potentially uh, effective, uh, only patients who have a brain tumor with IDH1 mutation uh, would be able to enroll uh, tumors that do not have this mutation, of course, uh, because this is a very targeted and personalized therapy, uh, will not be um, uh, derive any ben benefit. Um, but this is very exciting because it's basically the first time that we see a very targeted drug against IDH showing this high level of activity in these patients. Thank you very much for uh, being with me during this call, and I hope you have a good afternoon. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yamoto. That was a wonderful presentation, very comprehensive, and a lot of information um, uh, this year from ASCO on, on, on brain cancer, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowitz. Dr. Misikowitz is Associate Professor of Medicine hematology and medical oncology, assistant professor, otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Masikowicz is going to be addressing um, actually oral and head and neck cancer updates from ASCO 2019. It's really my great pleasure um, to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masikowicz. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, depending where you are. So I'm in New York City, so it's uh, afternoon. Um, so I'm very delighted and excited to be here among all those uh, excellent speakers and talk about the recent ASCO uh, update uh, about uh, head and neck cancer. So first I want to say that many times ASCO gives us interesting results, at least in head and neck and probably in many cancers, and uh, very interesting hypotheses, but many times... Um, they cannot be implemented immediately in the day-to-day -day practice. Uh, and this year, there was a keynote O40H study presentation that not only was interesting, but it led to a new FDA indication and changing standard of care, and we can apply those results in our practice. So, um, and giving us a new standard of care. So, kind of the historic uh, approach. So, for many, many years in head and neck cancer, when we had a patient with metastatic or recurrent unresectable disease, we were treating those patients with uh, chemotherapy. And one of the standard care that we use, it's called extreme regimen, based on the name of the study that uh, was using it. And it was improved in 2008. And it had some challenges. Um, obviously, toxicity is one. There was a, a pretty intense of the logistics and appointment and et cetera. But for many, many years, we didn't have any other good alternative. So this year, there was a study called Keynote uh, 048 uh, conducted by Mark presenting a randomized study 
that uh, had three arms. It had 800 patients, it was slightly above, and the one arm, it was a standard of care, which is extreme regimen, which is chemotherapy, and two experimental arms. One of them used immunotherapy called pembrolizumab or PD-1 inhibitors or Keytruda, and the other arm, it was a combination of chemotherapy and Keytruda. And two experimental arms were not powered to show any difference between them. So basically, both of those experimental arms, they're trying to prove that Keytruda, either given as a monotherapy in combination, is better than the current standard of care. So uh, I'm very excited to say that both arms show there is a benefit of using immunotherapy in the first-line settings. So when we have a patient with metastatic or unresectable head and neck cancer, and they were never treated before for this indication, we call it the first line, we have something else that we can offer to those patients. So what it showed for patients that have a CPS score, and what is the CPS score? The CPS score is sort of like a test that assess probability that the treatment with immunotherapy, in this case Keytruda, is going to be successful. So if this CPS score, and pathologists are well trained to do it, this is something that is done based on the biopsy. So when we obtain the biopsy, pathologist gives us the score, and then oncologists make, can make a decision. So when this score is one or above, the studies show there is a benefit of using monotherapy, so Keytruda alone, which is the immunotherapy, because it shows it's better in efficacy, so there is a better Overall survival, there is a better duration of the response. Essentially, those patients, they live longer. So there's just, this is one benefit. The second benefit is that Keytruda has significantly less side effects than any chemotherapy, and in this case, extreme regimen. So the benefit is in efficacy. The second benefit is in having less side effects. And the third one is the better quality of life because the amount of visits and the intensity of the visit is significantly less with Keytruda rather than chemotherapy. So it's sort of like a triple benefit. But again, the key information is that the pathologist has to provide us with the CPS score in order for this drug to be applicable and you can be eligible for this treatment. But it shouldn't be very challenging to obtain it. This is sort of like a standard that we do oncology. So this is one aspect. The second aspect that there was a second middle arm. It was a combination of chemotherapy plus Keytruda. And in this case, Keytruda given in the combination showed that regardless of the score, the combination is better than the current standard of care, which is a chemotherapy. But obviously when something is given in the combination, in this case, Keytruda is given with chemotherapy, the side effect profile is significantly different when Keytruda is given as a monotherapy because those two other agents that it's given with, obviously they're going to add some toxicity. So FDA approved this combination regardless of the CPS score. CPS score. So basically, if your physician cannot get the CPS score for any reason, or for some reason there are some technical challenges, if the biopsy cannot be repeated, you can be treated with a combination of Keytruda plus chemotherapy. Or the other scenario is if your CPS score is less than one, you still can be treated with this combination. So the benefit of that combination compared to the standard chemotherapy is that A, those patients, they live longer, so there is a benefit in overall survival. The response rate is the same as the standard chemotherapy, and the side effects are very similar to the chemotherapy that um, uh, previously we were using, but there is a huge advantage because the 
intensity of the visit is significantly less, so there is an improvement in the quality of life because you don't have to come so frequently to the clinic. So, in summary, what is the difference between current standard of care, which is chemotherapy, versus the combination of immunotherapy and chemotherapy? Better efficacy, so these patients live longer. The same side effects as previously, so still there is some elements that obviously uh, they have to be addressed, but there is nothing new. There is no new toxicity, so all of us on college are very familiar how to address them. And third, there is less visits that are required. So as of now, we have new standard of care that we can use in head and neck cancer, and this is the result of current ASCO. So I'm very excited, and especially because... We've seen immunotherapy being used in other cancer, and I was kind of jealous as I had in a cancer oncologist that I, can, I cannot use it outside of the clinical trial for my patient, and I can just join my colleagues. So second, I want to discuss uh, another interesting uh, abstract of some of them that um, evaluates the role of induction chemotherapy in treatment of nasopharyngeal cancer. So what is induction chemotherapy? So induction chemotherapy, sometimes called neoadjuvant therapy, is a chemotherapy that is given before the um, curative treatment is being delivered. So as an example, we can give chemotherapy first, and then subsequently we're going to be giving chemotherapy and radiation, or sometimes we do the surgery. And the purpose of induction chemotherapy is, A, to shrink the cancer, so maybe the surgery is going to be easier, or maybe the chemotherapy and radiation that is done after is going to be easier to deliver, so this is first, first shrinkage. Second, if the mass is pretty big, if you're going to shrink it, it provides you with the symptomatic improvement. So you can imagine if you have pain and the mass is big, if you're going to shrink it, you're going to have less pain. And in nasopharyngeal cancer, sometimes the throat uh, can be uh, obstructed, so it can be harder for you to swallow, it can be harder for you to breathe. So by shrinking the cancer, obviously you're going to have improvement in those symptoms. But at the same time, you can imagine that if I'm giving you chemotherapy, it always comes at a price, meaning that you're going to be subjected to some side effects. So we are always asking a question, if by giving induction chemotherapy, we're going to make these patients to live longer. And there are several abstracts showing that probably yes. It was kind of a matter of debate because historically we used to treat patients with nasopharyngeal cancer with chemotherapy first, skipping the induction, and giving them chemotherapy after. That was really hard to deliver. So technically many times what we end up doing, we're treating patients just with the chemotherapy and radiation. And the results were pretty encouraging, but as doctors, we're going to get even better results. So that's why we're asking this question, what is the role of this induction chemotherapy? And this few abstract during the ASCO showed that by giving induction chemotherapy to patients with nasopharyngeal cancer, there is an improvement in survival. And obviously not all the patients they required, we call those patients locally advanced. If they have the more lymph nodes that are involved, the primary mass is bigger. And there are several options in terms of what kind of chemotherapy you can use as induction, and all of them, they seem to be very similar. So this is the new regimen that was implemented in the, uh, in the arsenal of treatment that obviously we can use in treatment of the nasopharyngeal cancer, and it is part, uh, part of the NCCN guidelines, which is like a Bible to oncologists and give us the guidance how to treat patients. So this is the second part. The third part, speaking of induction chemotherapy, we're talking about immunotherapy. So 
induction, induction chemotherapy that was given in nasopharyngeal cancer, I said we're using chemotherapy. So now the scientists are asking a question. If we have this immunotherapy that is significantly less toxic, can we replace chemotherapy given in induction and give them immunotherapy instead? Are we going to be getting the same results? Because obviously it's very interesting to give immunotherapy because it gives you less side effects. And actually, there was a study that patients with oropharyngeal cancer that were given PD-1 inhibitor, it, in this case, it was Dorva. It's a, uh, it's a drug that uh, stimulates the immune system. And some other patients were getting tremolinumab and Dorva. So it was two immunotherapy agents. And subsequently, those patients, they had the surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. And the question was, how effective is it going to be? Are we going to get the same shrinkage as we're going to get from chemotherapy, and will we see less or more side effects? And this is the preliminary study. This is a very small study, and obviously we're looking how promising it's going to look so we can move forward and put more patients on those studies. So the response rate was very impressive. So obviously probably the subsequent study obviously is going to test this idea. And there is significantly less side effects when it comes to immunotherapy that we usually see in when we use chemotherapy. So obviously this approach looks very promising and probably we're going to see more studies obviously using this idea and testing this hypothesis. So it's quite possible in a few years if we're going to be giving induction, we're not going to be using chemotherapy as much. We may be using immunotherapy. And the last one that I want to discuss, which is very rare, but sometimes I kind of feel bad when we talk about the typical cancers that we see in head and neck, there are some other cancers that are not very common, and I want to just discuss salivary gland tumor. And this is something that I really have to appreciate for the conference like this, because you can learn from your colleagues how other treatments, that other cancers are treated. And I'm going to explain why. So salivary gland tumor is a very rare cancer. So as a consequence of that, we don't know how to treat them because we don't see so many patients. And actually, we don't have any good standard of care. So whenever the patient comes in, when we go to the NCCA and guidelines, they recommend clinical trial, or there are some promising but still not the proof agent that we can use in such a scenario. So what I learned from other colleagues, because salivary gland tumor is a gland, and there are some other glands in the human body. So sometimes those other cancers, they behave the same way. So, for example, salivary gland tumors that can behave like prostate cancer, so they can respond to the same treatment. Some of them, they have the HER2, and during the breast cancer discussion, we learn about the HER2 agent. And many times we can apply this information and kind of use it in those tumors with hopes that if those agents used in breast or prostate cancer, maybe they're going to be used here and they're going to be pretty efficacious. It's going to be easier for us because we already know them. So in this case, there was a small study. It was just 10 patients with salivary gland tumors, and patient expressed HER2. So something that we do see in breast cancer, and we know how to treat those patients when they have the breast cancer. So we said, okay, let's use this information. In this case, they used a drug called TDM1. So this is the drug that is used once you're going to progress on Herceptin kind of drugs using the same kind of mechanism of action. And we saw amazing response rates. So you can imagine that you have the patient that we don't know how to treat. It is aggressive and we don't have any good treatment options, and all of a sudden we have this very promising result. And we cannot do it without your participation. So this is the perfect example 
But you should always consider a clinical trial because you're going to have the access to those innovative ideas, sometimes innovative drugs, and you can benefit from this. So in this case, there were 10 patients and 90% of them responded to the treatment. And obviously, it's hard to say how this drug is going to perform in the large studies, the larger study, but obviously the results are very promising. And those patients not only responded, but they lived longer. So uh, this is a perfect example that the talk like this and the conference like this, when we talk about promising studies that are being presented at ASCO, they can encourage you to participate in, the, and participate in them, and you can directly have a benefit. So in summary, I just want to thank everybody. I want to encourage you to come again and attend those uh, conferences like this one and encourage you to participate in clinical trials. And for those of you who already participated, I just want to thank you because without your participation, we're unable to have this conference today. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Masikowicz. That was really quite outstanding and really very interesting call out to, again, to clinical trials. And also those examples you gave are really wonderful in terms of the application of one treatment to another type of cancer that may express similar um, mutations. So this is really excellent. Thank you so much. Um, excellent. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Priscilla Merriam. And Dr. Merriam is physician, medical oncology, Sarcoma and Bone Cancer Treatment Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Sarcoma, I'm sorry, Dr. Merriam is actually going to present on updates from ASCO um, 2019 on sarcoma, but she also has been gracious enough to also wrap up today's program a bit with um, some common themes and, and, and actually promising research presented at ASCO. So it's really um, a great privilege to have Dr. Miriam on the call. She's been on the entire call this entire time, and she is going to um, uh, go next. And it's my great pleasure to um, turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Miriam. Thank you, Dr. Bessner. Uh, I'm privileged to join you and the other speakers to share highlights from the 2019 ASCO annual meeting. Uh, this meeting was an especially exciting meeting as we got to hear early results of some important studies in sarcoma and results of research projects that are becoming more finalized. As sarcomas are rare, it can be a challenge to conduct trials with the numbers of participants that may be needed to answer a research question clearly. This year, however, there were three large research studies that were presented that had been designed to answer important questions about the treatment of people with sarcoma. The Italian Sarcoma Group presented a randomized trial of chemotherapy given before surgery for individuals with certain types of localized sarcoma. This study was conducted at multiple centers in Europe. In this study, participants were randomly assigned to receive either the chemotherapy drugs used traditionally as an adjunct to surgery, including doxorubicin, or to receive chemotherapy drugs selected for their specific sarcoma type. The results suggested that for individuals with the types of sarcoma studied in this trial, if chemotherapy is felt to be indicated before surgery, doxorubicin-based chemotherapy may be better than uh, chemotherapy that's tailored for the specific sarcoma subtypes that were studied in this trial. Another large study that was presented, the Strauss trial, was conducted to try to answer the question about what the role of radiation may be in addition to surgery for localized abdominal sarcomas. This was an international study, and individuals who agreed to participate were randomly assigned to receive radiation before surgery that was, uh, would be done to remove their abdominal tumor or to have surgery to remove their tumor without radiation previous to the surgery. 
The results suggested that there may be some benefit to preoperative radiation for people with a type of low-grade liposarcoma. However, the results overall seem to suggest that radiation does not play a clear role in addition to surgery as it does for certain tumors in the arms and the legs. We also heard the results of a very highly anticipated, very important study of doxorubicin plus olaritumab. Olaritumab is a monoclonal antibody, and it was designed to target a protein called PDGFR-alpha. An early study of olaritumab was published in 2016, and in this study, participants uh, with many different types of metastatic sarcoma were randomly assigned to receive either doxorubicin alone or doxorubicin plus olaritumab. The results of this trial were unusual because there appeared to be a very big benefit for people who received both doxorubicin, the chemotherapy doxorubicin, as well as olaritumab. So based on this potentially promising information, olaritumab received accelerated FDA approval as well as European approval, and its use became quickly widespread while we were waiting to hear the results of a larger trial that was already planned to see whether these results would be confirmed. The current trial that was presented at this year's ASCO had a larger number of participants. These participants were randomly assigned to receive either the chemotherapy doxorubicin plus placebo or to receive doxorubicin plus olaritumab. Groups were blinded, so neither the participants nor the treating team knew which treatment each person was receiving. The results of the larger study, in fact, did not confirm a benefit from adding olaritumab to doxorubicin. And based on these results, olaritumab is no longer being prescribed for people who have not received it. Researchers are still trying to figure out what the potential role of olaritumab may be and why the results were different between the two studies. There were uh, several immunotherapy studies of note that were presented this year, and you've already heard quite a lot about uh, immunotherapy and other types of cancers. A small study was done using chemotherapy uh, with doxorubicin along with uh, the immunotherapy pembrolizumab in people with metastatic sarcoma. In this study, there were some promising responses with the combination of these two agents. An interesting aspect of this study was that many of the participants had not received much chemotherapy prior to starting this particular trial. One of the questions we have in general about immunotherapy is whether there may be some benefit to giving it early before someone has received multiple types of chemotherapy. Similarly, the preliminary results from a trial called the SAINT trial of the immunotherapy drugs ipilimumab, nivolumab, and the chemotherapy drug trabectidin showed some encouraging results in participants who had never before received chemotherapy for their metastatic sarcoma. We also heard some final results from the SARC-28 trial of the immunotherapy drug pembrolizumab in certain subtypes of sarcoma, specifically liposarcoma and undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. Encouraging results were seen, especially in participants with undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. In the liposarcoma group, there were also some good results seen. Finally, there were reports of other promising immunotherapy approaches as we try to understand how immunotherapy may work in sarcoma and what ways we may wish to combine immunotherapy with other drugs. Uh, for example, there were trials uh, including the um, uh, agents like Nectar214 with nivolumab and CMB305 with atezolizumab, and we'll wait to hear what the, further how those uh, trials work out. For those of you who follow the research for gastrointestinal stromal tumor, you know that recently there has been uh, 
quite a lot of encouraging progress in developing new treatments for metastatic gastrointestinal stromal tumors. At this year's meeting, uh, Dr. Heinrich provided some updated data on responses to avapritinib, a kinase inhibitor known previously as BLUE285, in people who have just previously treated with at least three types of, of uh, prior therapies, or who's just has a specific mutation uh, called a PDGFR-A exon 18 mutation. Uh, almost all of these uh, individuals had the D842V mutation. In people who received avapritinib after at least three prior GIST therapies, there were very encouraging results, especially when considering that these individuals had already received several different treatments in the past. In the group of people with the PDGFR-A exon 18 mutations, a very high percentage of these patients experienced excellent results. So this is a very uh, encouraging additional information about this, uh, about this particular agent. Assessing whether there's a potential role for immunotherapy in gastrointestinal stromal tumor has been an ongoing area of interest. Uh, we heard this year about some preliminary results from a study assessing a combination of two immunotherapy drugs, nivolumab and ipilimumab, in people with metastatic gastrointestinal stromal tumor whose tumors have grown uh, after treatment with at least imatinib with a standard first drug. In this study, people were randomly assigned to receive either just nivolumab or to receive the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab, both immunotherapy drugs. In this analysis, there were some encouraging early results. Uh, we'll need to wait for some further data as it develops to try to learn whether immunotherapy, uh, whether and what role immunotherapy may play in the uh, in treatment of people with, of uh, gastrointestinal stromal tumors. Finally, there were encouraging results from a study of a drug called. Uh, cabozantinib. It's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which is FDA approved for use in several other types of cancers. And, and this was in people uh, whose gist had grown uh, despite treatment with imatinib and sunitinib. And in this study, there were some um, definitely some promising results, in, results in, uh, in many of the study participants. An interesting study was uh, presented for people with metastatic epithelioid sarcoma, a very specific subtype of sarcoma. Uh, this was a study of an oral medication called Tazmetastat. Uh, this acts against a target involved in promoting cancer cell growth and epithelioid sarcoma. Participants with metastatic epithelioid sarcoma were eligible to participate if their tumor had been tested and there was a lack of a protein called INI1 in the tumor. INI1 is a tumor, uh, sorry, it's a protein that's found in normal cells, and when a problem develops with this protein in cancer cells, it can lead to growth of tumors. The results of this study of Tazmetastat were really quite encouraging for people with this type of sarcoma. Finally, as I mentioned at the beginning, that the rarity of sarcoma and of individual sarcoma types can make it challenging to do research uh, in this field. Many patients with sarcoma, however, are very interested in participating in research and, and want to contribute to the understanding of how these cancers behave and how to improve treatment. One of the presentations given this year in the, ASC, uh, in the sarcoma sessions at ASCO was interesting uh, in terms of the potential for people to contribute to learning about sarcoma if they wish. The presenter described an initiative to generate, in the words of the researcher, a massive amount of data to help researchers speed up improvements in treatments for people living with cancer. 
through this initiative, uh, data have been uh, and are being collected from individuals with cancer who volunteer to provide access to their uh, leftover tumor and other samples um, and medical records. The initiative began uh, as a collaboration between people living with metastatic breast cancer uh, and researchers, and in just a short period of time, thousands of women and men with metastatic breast cancer signed up to volunteer to provide information about their cancer uh, and tumor and other samples to researchers. Based on this encouraging response, a similar project was launched for people living with angiosarcoma. It's called the Angiosarcoma Project and was developed, again, in collaboration with people uh, uh, interested or living with angiosarcoma who, um, uh, from a, a, an internet group. In a short period of time, more than 400 people with angiosarcoma have uh, signed up according to the um, uh, statistics so far. Uh, and with the data provided by the patients who wanted to include their information, the researchers have identified, for example, cases of impressive results to immunotherapy in some patients with certain angiosarcomas. So hopefully this will be uh, an encouraging avenue in general in sarcoma and, and in the medical field to try to harness what some people refer to as big data, uh, of course, always from people who volunteer and wish to participate in, in research and help move the field forward. So in summary, I'd say that Every year, it's, it's a reminder to me that we come together to, at ASCO to share and, and the recent advancements in cancer care, but that the meeting serves in so many more purposes than just hearing the, the, the latest update about uh, one clinical trial or another. It's, it's an annual reminder to me of how inspirational everyone is who wants to make life better for people with living with cancer, including physicians, pharmacists, researchers, nurses, advocates, patients, families, and so many other people who care about people living with cancer. Today's workshop is a reminder that none of what we learn is possible without the openness of people with cancer who decide to participate in clinical research trials, looking for better treatments for themselves and for other people like them. The community of all these amazing people is the reason uh, that we work every day to learn more about cancer, about treatments for cancer, and about living with cancer so we can continue to, to get better and better at, at what we do. I'd like to thank you for the uh, everyone for the role that you play, um, and please make sure to talk with your treatment team to find out how to participate in clinical research trials if that is something that's right for you. Uh, as Dr. Mazikowicz uh, has, um, you know, beautifully explained pre uh, previous to me, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to participate in this cancer care workshop. Uh, and it is a privilege, and it is always a privilege. And thank you, Dr. Messner. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Miriam. That was really superb. And, and thank you also for, again, the call out to clinical trials and the importance of that and how important the meeting is in terms of, um, so eloquently said, um, how important the ASCO meetings are every year. Um, and we look forward to um, your participating in the future as well. Um, I want to thank all of you on the call today. Um, and just in concluding, um, I just would like to um, just say a word about um, resources for all of you. Um, you will, at the end of this program, be receiving an evaluation form. And the evaluation form isn't just an evaluation form. There also will be resources that our speakers will have, um, may have mentioned during the presentations and also um, resources that we think might be of use to you. Um, I also uh, want to encourage you who may have questions or concerns that you, of course, go back um, as Dr. Miriam had said, to your treating healthcare team, discuss what you've learned on the today's call as it applies to you, and really have those discussions. Um, and for those of you who wish to seek some uh, emotional or social or practical support, please feel free to contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 
or contact our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and I do want to remind all of you that we are doing a program um, actually um, in October, October 28th, on preventing chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and that may be a program that might be of interest to all of you, any of you who are undergoing treatment and may be having that particular side effect. And um, I, again, I want to thank you all and remind you all that you are not alone in coping with, uh, with cancer. You may feel alone very often, um, but there are lots of resources out there. It's not just cancer care, but there are a lot of many, many different organizations for your particular type of cancer, and we're happy to connect you to them or link you to them. So, again, I want to thank you all for participating today. And there is a part two to this program, actually, um, which will be on, um, thir- on Tuesday, August 27th, addressing other types of cancers that you might be interested in. So please do stay tuned, and, um, and thank you all. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.